Hi, this is Sunny, and this is a Sunny Look at the Bible. Our new study is called Adding Jesus to Your Today. Every week for six weeks, we're going to learn how to add Jesus to every trial and trauma. In fact, especially in every trial and trauma, it is an opportunity to add Jesus. Now, I believe life doesn't happen to us. Life happens for us. But let's talk about how that works and how that works for you. Let's start now right into adding Jesus to your today. All right. This week we are talking about peacemaking. And we're also going to be talking after we after we talk about peacemaking about boundaries. So peacemaking versus peacekeeping there is a huge difference. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. If someone says or does something that hurts you, what is your knee-jerk reaction? Is it to pretend that everything is fine so that you can keep the peace? Is it to confront the person to prove how wrong they are? Is it to talk to people you consider safe and on your on your side? Is it to freeze and to do nothing but protect yourself for the next time? or fill in the blank. So what is your response, your knee-jerk reaction when someone hurts you? So remember at the end of last uh, week or the week before, I asked you how your emotions are expressed. And I wonder if you were able to identify, and if you didn't listen to or watch that, you can always catch the first two weeks of this because we are building one on top of the other. Were you able to identify how your emotion, emotions are expressed? Were you able to identify that you're a sensitivity detonated trigger, that you can be set off anything? I mean, literally sensitivity triggers, if we're talking about emotional bombs, emotional reactions, just the smallest thing, just, just I mean, you fly off the handle. You may, might not want to admit that, but maybe that's you, that you just have a hard time uh, uh, dealing with or not expressing your emotion? Or were you more of a ticking time bomb? Were you an emotional stuffer? Now, I had said before, and I will say again, you may say I'm neither. But what I would tell you, I wouldn't say I'm either as well. I feel like, okay, I'm 42 and I've gone through journey to wholeness and I'm, you know, every day working on my emotions and my spirit. I still tend to lean one direction or the other. I would be an emotional stuffer. I personally was a champion stuffer. Now I don't feel like it's my biggest problem. Uh, but here's the upside of stuffing. This is why I did it then and why I still tend to do it now. Because it has an appearance of a peacemaker. And I like peace. I like peace in my home. I like peace at work. I like peace in the world. Like the whole this whole time of the pandemic, the racial tension, these are all things, especially the racial injustices, those are things that need to be addressed. But I really just, oh, I wish we could all just say everybody's good. Like I just, and I hate the partisan divide, right? I mean, politics have just gotten way out of control. It's so extreme. I'm like, can somebody moderate please run for president? Because you might get more votes than you ever imagined. Like I can't handle these extremes. It's hate, it's hate, it's hate. And so for me as a stuffer, I can justify it's good to have peace. Look at look at how bad it is in the world when we don't have peace. But we are told to speak the truth in love. And that means 
in every situation that uh, we are in relationship or we're in a conversation and we are supposed to not just stuff and not just be um, trying to be a peacemaker, but we're also supposed, supposed to speak the truth in love so that we aren't just flying off the handle all the time, that both of those require that we look at what is truth and we look at how would we do it lovingly because productive conflict actually gains trust. So think about in your marriage, think about with your kids. My kids are teenagers, so we're talking more on a a closer to an adult level than I'm mom, they're the kids, and I just say, because I said so. So when we have conflict, let's just stay on that. Let's stay on um, myself and my teenagers, or maybe you have adult kids, or maybe you have an eight-year-old, but they're starting to, they need more than a spanking or a timeout or a because I said so. When we have conflict and we talk it through, it's productive. It's And I don't have this in my book that I'm going off of for my notes here, my book that actually I just got my signed contract um, and my advance check. That's weird to get a check from a publisher. So weird. Got that yesterday and then I opened it today and I was like, this is so strange. But in my book, I, I need to write this in. I honestly need to add this, that uh, even with our children, productive conflict gains trust. And if my kids know I'm willing to have a conversation about why I'm saying no versus I'm just saying no, go to your room because frankly, I want peace in the kitchen and I don't want to yell in the kitchen. So go to your room. So that's stuffing, you know, that's, that's what I, I'm like, you know what? End of story. That's how I want to do it. Sean is more willing to talk about it and talk about it longer and deal with it right now. And I'm just like, Oh, I just, I don't like that. They're yelling and they don't understand why. So as, as a parent, when you're a stuffer, you tend to be, and you might've had parents like this, there was no discussion. Also, if the parent over-disciplined or the parent was wrong, the parent never came back and said, uh, you know what, I apologize, that was overboard because it made the parent or it makes me as a parent feel like, is that good parenting that I would fall on my sword and ask forgiveness? Like I'm in charge, I'm the authority. And I've been guilty of yelling at my kids, I'm the boss, I'm the authority. I'm the parent, I can do what I want and yell like I want. You can't do what you want and yell. And they're looking at me saying, you're yelling, so why can't I yell? And I'm like, because I'm the parent, because I'm the authority. And here's the deal. I, in my deepest part of my body, I believe in authority. I believe that there is submission. And I think that we live in a generation where we're lacking in that. So I want to swing the pendulum and say, shut up. I'm in charge go to your room. We're not going to have a discussion. I just want peace and I want you to obey authority. But if productively we can have conflict where I can explain to them, even if it's heated, even if it's strong, the conversation, I can explain why them going to someone's house I don't know with four people I don't know. And then, um, they might go out and drive around later that night. Why that isn't okay. It's going to get probably heated because they want to, but as I explain it, and then if they go and do what they want anyway, and they see the results, it gains trust in our relationship. So metaphorically speaking, um, I choose to be the thermostat of any environment. Now, that's not just saying let's stuff and keep the peace. Metaphorically speaking, to be the thermostat 
of your home, of your job, of your relationship, is that you're, when you're the thermostat, you're choosing to set the tone of the environment. So if I walk into a meeting um, and it is tense and it is cold and like the temperature of the room is like ice cold, people are glaring at each other, there's like long pauses of silence, then as a thermostat, and I might be the leader or might just be peer level with that room, can I come in and can I turn the thermostat up so it's not cold and chilly? Now, there's self-awareness to realize don't just come in and start shouting and cheering and acting like a fool to try to make everybody laugh. Self-awareness to know, okay, how do I, like, we tell our kids never turn the thermostat up like five degrees. Do it incrementally. Just turn it up one, maybe two, but why are you cranking it up? Why are you cranking it down? So when you're a thermostat and you walk into an environment or you walk into your house from a long day, you you are the thermostat wherever you go. It's being aware you're the thermostat. So as a stuffer, I have to realize that I can't just stuff the emotions that I want to feel. And I have to always pretend and act like everything's great. There's also times that I'll walk in a room and it's heated and it's everyone's angry and it's loud. How am I a peacemaker where I calm people down? It's not going to be just by sitting there like a peacekeeper. It might be, hey guys, okay, let's hear from both sides, right? And that doesn't have to just be you're the leader. That can be you're one of the employees. And so what what productive conflict, not just shutting it down and canceling the meeting or having everyone go to their room. That's, let's talk about this, but become the thermostat. In fact, James 3.17 says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, which is honest. Honesty isn't always pretty. It isn't always stuffing. Then peace loving. So, but here's the thing about peace making versus peacekeeping. We are not asked to go back for more for more mistreatment. So what peacemaking is not, is not saying, I'm going to make the peace with everybody who's hurt me. I'm going to forgive. We went over this last week. That forgiveness is not the same as forgiveness and forgetting. Forgiveness is what we're asked to do. Forgetting is not. We're not capable of it. We are allowed to make boundaries. When I peace make, it doesn't mean I'm just peacekeeping. It doesn't mean that I'm just going to um, stuff my emotions and not deal with it or take the hit again. Peacemaking is we're going to deal with it. We aren't asked to go back for more mistreatment. And so we've often heard this line, especially if you've been a part of a church, you've heard this line in Matthew 5, 39, turn the other cheek. Uh, basically, like if you get if you get slapped on the face, just turn the other cheek, get slapped again, like just, you know, just let it happen. We often think that that message is to let people beat us up and continue, but that is a dangerous mistake. And that's actually not the context of it. Um, in this interpretation, it fails to look at the cultural context. And it would be taking um, other things out of context, like when Paul's command for women to not braid their hair uh, was like this universal condemnation that the churches said, you know, in some major conservative religions would say, 
women aren't to have um, braided hair or um, there's another one. Uh, you keep a tin of ca- tin can of fiery coals on your enemy's head. That's not what he's saying. Um, Paul is not saying that. And so burning coals on someone's head is as extreme taking it out of context as women shouldn't cut their hair or braid their hair or show their hair or jewelry shouldn't be worn or the beard shouldn't be trimmed or it should be trimmed. And so the cultural context is important. That's why when pastor has been giving us 11 weeks, we're on week 12 of Romans, but we haven't got to Romans because we're leading into Romans to get all of the context so that Romans will actually make sense to us. So the amazing thing is we're 12 weeks in of learning about Paul so that when we get to Romans, we're going to hear the verses in a new, profound, contextual way. Same thing with when we've heard, turn the other cheek. Basically, take it in the chin and take it in the chin again. But actually, what Jesus really meant, and I'm going to read from you from my book this because it's so valuable. Uh, In Jesus' day, Roman soldiers strutted arrogantly around Israel. The Jewish land was Roman-occupied territory. There was no love lost between the occupying soldiers, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish population. When a soldier decided that he needed a Jew's goods or services, resistance was futile. If the subject could not perform the request of the Roman soldier's liking, the Jew received a quick backhand to the face. This was the situation Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus said. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek toward him. The statement simply implies that one should invite an aggressor to leave no part of the face out of a good beating. The statement doesn't sit well among Bible readers who believe that we should protect our property and ourselves and our family. Jesus does not tell someone who takes a fist to the face to expose the uninjured side. He gives clear instruction to expose the left cheek. This leads to an important question. Why would Jesus indicate that a first blow will come to the right cheek? Why would he instruct someone to offer the left cheek to an attacking Roman soldier? The answer is this. Roman soldiers tended to be right-handed. When they struck someone of an equal rank with their fist, it came from the right and made contact with the left of the face. When they struck an inferior person, they swung with the back of their right hand, making contact with the right cheek. In a Mediterranean culture, that made clear distinctions between classes. Roman soldiers backhanded their subjects to make a point. Jews were second class. No one thought twice about treating lesser people with less respect. When Jesus tells fellow Jews to expose the left cheek, he is calling for peaceful subversion. Does that sound familiar right now, what's going on? He does not want them to retaliate in anger, nor to shrink in some false sense of meekness. He wants to force the Roman soldiers to treat them like equals. He wants the Jews to stand up and demand respect. He wants to make each attacker stop and think about how they are mistreating another human being. It is the same motivation behind his command to go an extra mile after a soldier forces you to carry water for the first mile. That's in Matthew 5:41. It is intended to activate the soldier's conscience. Jesus' command to turn the other cheek is ultimately a call to peaceful resistance. It is the mantra of great men inspired by Jesus, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King Jr. Elsewhere in the Bible, the book of books of Proverbs and Roman calls it heaping coals, burning coals on your enemy's head. That expression is an ancient Near 
Eastern mourning ritual. People put ashes on their head to express deep sorrow or regret. The Apostle Paul's call to overcome evil with good and thereby heaping burning coals on an enemy's head. It's a call to shame evil people into repentance. It is a peaceful plan to subvert cultural evils. These examples of turning the other cheek and heaping ashes ashes were taken more literally in that time and culture because it is so clearly referenced the people knew firsthand. In our present day culture, we can let phrases roll off our tongue and have no idea what we really mean. So turning the other cheek is not a blanket acceptance of brutality. It is a strategy for motivating others to change. If you meet evil with evil and blow for blow, the cycle of vengeance will never end. However, peaceful subversion is one among many of Jesus' plans for changing the world. You'll miss it if you misunderstand this cultural context. Jesus didn't command us to get beat up. He commanded us to activate people's consciousness of injustice. Think about that. That's peacemaking. That's what peaceful protest does. And right now, I just talked about, I want a moderate candidate I can vote for. I'm sick of the extreme political uh, fight right now. Uh, Peaceful protest. Peaceful That's exactly what Jesus was having them do. Activate the conscience by peaceful subversion. Okay, so this is is the thing. A Roman soldier would, I mean, I'm breaking this down. You heard it. Let me say it one more time. A a Roman soldier would punch another person that he viewed at his own level. He would backhand a Jew. It was a slave mentality that he looked down at the Jews. So Jews were looked down upon throughout history. Now we have racial problems, just like the Jewish problems that exist still today. People think Jews are lesser. There are, there are um, terrible things said. In fact, listen to a uh, pastor and a rabbi run it, walk into a cultural crisis because that podcast, man, It is so far beyond what we're dealing with right now on injustice and racism. It brings you all the way back to the promised children, the children of Israel and what they've been struggling with. And uh, you need to listen to that. You just need to. But to, to throw a punch by a Roman soldier was a man fighting with a man. To backhand a Jewish citizen was to basically prove you view them as lesser. You backhand them like a little kid if there's people that do that. So Jesus was saying, make them punch you or treat you like you're their level. He wanted to activate their conscience. So peacemaking. Peacemaking requires confronting. In fact, uh, in my book, I, I in my last book, but then also in this one, the rewrite that's double the length, uh, that will be coming out. Uh, I talked about, and I gave a letter of an example, a true life example of having to confront someone who is in authority over you. That one's a tough one. Peacemaking by productive conflict, by speaking the truth in love to someone who's older than you. Now, we all have parents, whether they're adoptive or biological, step-parents, we all have someone. Foster kids, they have lived with someone. Uh, we know when it just seems like it's not possible to communicate with someone in authority. But we also come of an age, and most of you are probably adults on here, where you don't have to put up with uh, what you 
what you have put up with. And so when you get to that point where now you can say unacceptable, you may have to have productive conflict. Now that may be in a letter like I put and I will have in my new book, a letter as an example of a person who's 20 years younger than the person they're confronting. Now it wasn't a biological parent, but it was a mentor and it was painful. And, but frankly, that mentor had become a gossip. That mentor only wanted to talk about negative. And I have noticed, I've noticed this in a lot of older people. It's almost like, and I'm not saying all, I'm not going to say all everyone. It's just, that's stereotypical too. But I've noticed in quite a few older people that I've experienced in my life, that it's almost like as they get retired or bored or watch more news, they get more opinionated. And it's almost like to find something to talk about, they have to talk about people. And sometimes that's their own kids and grandkids, which is amazing to me. It blows my mind. Um, Because I often have felt like if I can't be loyal to my family, how can I be loyal to anyone? And so this, this letter that I put in was an example of you. Sometimes you even have to have conflict with someone who's in authority over you, but you have to speak the truth in love. And so boundaries were made. Um, and I, I add that as an example. I can always, you'll probably get my book early on, or if you've already read Jesus Plus Life, that letter is in Jesus Plus Life. Uh, because this leads us to the next part of today and the next chapter in the book, which is uh, further setting boundaries with people by establishing your priorities. So uh, when this we wrote this letter, it pushed a new filter of what relationships do I have that don't bring the life-giving message of Jesus to my soul and to others? Or more personally, it's asking the question, who do I have in my life who isn't making a positive impact in my daily family routine? So here's a couple of questions as we transition to boundaries and priorities, which I'm going to talk about now. Uh, here's some questions you can write down. Who is someone in your life that you may need to engage in a productive confrontation? Second question. Do you need to first forgive someone to move beyond the offense so that you can confront in truth and love? And if you haven't watched or listened to the first two weeks, we're talking about discovering memories, offenses, hurt, roots of bitterness, and also looking at our emotions to see if we follow that emotion to the root, was there an offense with a person we forgot about and we forgot that memory, but it's affecting our adult life. So now... This is the next step. So if you didn't watch or listen to those, go back and watch or listen so that you can go through the process. And now you can you can determine, are you ready to have a, a conversation in truth and in love via a letter that you write to them this time? Not just you write and you throw away like we did in the first two weeks, but that you write to them and you establish boundaries. Or this is this a face-to-face conversation? If it's someone who abused you um, and they're not related, blood-related, like they're not your mom or dad, and you can totally set boundaries and not ever see them again, you need to forgive them, write the letter, don't send it, forgive them, move on and have 100% boundaries. You do not need to go back to someone who sexually abused you or physically abused you and think you have to, in the love of Jesus, have them in your life. Not true. Now, we are to honor our mother and father. We talk about that the first two weeks. And I 
help you last week realize how you do that. But there are some moms and dads, some grandparents that you as adults have to say, I have to make some boundaries I haven't made. I thought it was disloyal or I thought it was wrong of me to set boundaries with my own parents, with my own grandparents, with my siblings. It's not wrong to set boundaries. It's wrong to not forgive. So like I said, if you miss the first two weeks, you need to go back. We build on everything. We're already in chapter five of my 10 chapter book. Like I said, we're working through this process as I write the book. Um, One, I think that it's helping me establish even more important things that comes out while we're doing this study. And it's walking you through the process of wholeness. Uh, So we're going to talk about priorities. Now, some of you have probably heard this. This is how I started my very first Jesus Plus Life book. And that was, um, how do you see your favorite five? Um, We call it our fave five. Like who you've probably heard, if you've heard anything from Sean and I or staff, um, who are your five? And it's your five priorities. And T-Mobile started uh, years ago. Now we've forgotten it. But T-Mobile, they did the fave five. And remember when you couldn't just call everybody at the same rate on your cell phone plan, but you had certain minutes and then there were, you could pick five people as your fave five that basically it was like free to call them and everybody else it cost minutes for. So T-Mobile came up with that. And so Sean actually was the one who said, you know what? That concept of your fave five, like who would be in your fave five? So we looked into it further and thought, you know what? That's a priority thing. And ultimately, our five, all of us should have God first. Uh, For some people, God's not on the radar and they wonder why their life just is always a wreck because maybe they have their spouse as their their number one priority. And then when their spouse, spouse treats them poorly or they have a fight or even has an affair or wants a divorce, everything is built on their number one priority and then life falls apart. So Sean is not my number one priority. Uh, he's not even my second priority. So it's not God, Sean, get this. And this blew some people's minds. Seven years ago, seven and a half years ago when we moved here and probably seven years ago, Sean wrote the message about your five and I stole it for my book. And he said, here's the thing. And he's telling this to a small church of people that had existed. They, it was a life church was a church planned a couple years before we got here. We just basically replanted it, but we had people that were already in the church. When he stood up there and said, God is number one. I have to fight to make him number one. He has to be the first part of my day. I have to I have to put him first in every way, but it's hard. It's the fight. It's the struggle of life. But he is number one. I'm number two. Sean Hennessy said is number two. You know what? I'm more important than any of you. And I mean, to the church people, you could have heard a pin drop besides a couple women that gasped. That was like, how could you not put me as your church congregant number two under God? And he's like, you you don't even make my five. Mind blown. So let's let's go through it. God myself. This is another thing that blows people's minds. You're saying that yourself should be more important than your husband and your kids? Yep. Because if I'm not good, I'm not good for anyone. So God, myself, because if I'm a better me, I'm a better wife and I'm a better mom. And my family appreciates when Sunny gets better, when Sunny grows, when Sunny gets some self-care time. I'm a better person after I've had a bubble bath, period. You know, if your family starts asking you to go get a manicure or a pedicure, that might be a sign they need you to be happier. Okay, so God, myself, then Sean, notice my husband, my spouse, your spouse is more important than your children, than your children. Now, there is a caveat. There's a lot of divorce in the world. 
when you are divorced, you're not with the one that was to be number, number three, you cannot put the new spouse or the boyfriend or the fiance or the live-in, you cannot put that person above your children. Your children didn't ask to be and go through a divorce. That's the caveat. God, self, you may be, if you're in a divorce situation, you may be putting your children third rather than putting them fourth. Um, I, because Sean and I are still married, Sean, and, Sean is my next priority. Our kids know that we love the whole family, but that daddy loves mommy more than he loves the kids. Now, how this plays out day to day is, and it's happening in the teenage years, I need Sean to actually walk that out and he needs me to walk that out and we need to walk that out in front of our kids because that's where if we're not more important than our kids then when our kids use pit the other against the other like hey mommy said I could go here and and or mommy said I couldn't or to talk to you then when we're not on the same page then we end up fighting because we love our kids and their happiness more than we love the, the peace and the agreement we have with one another so God self, spouse, kids, then extended family or friends. Because some of us, we've, we've had to put boundaries with family members who are so unhealthy and not open to Jesus uh, that there are some Jesus friends that are part of that, that fifth. Um, some of us, we have godly parents, godly family. And so we don't have any friends on our top five list. Like if friends can fit in and hang out once in a while, cool. But like, they're not, it's not me, um, my kids, my friends I go to the bar with, my spouse, if I'm not ticked at them, my mom and dad, um, or some people put their mom and dad higher than their spouse because uh they haven't left, they, they haven't left, and this is one of the terms in the Bible, leave and cleave. They haven't left uh, their family and fully cut off the fact that now that I'm married, I have to choose my marriage over my extended family. Now, I know there's dynamics in that, um, but if you have a Jesus-loving, Jesus-believing spouse, then you for sure have to leave and cleave, and your spouse has to be a higher priority than parents. Okay, so last and how we're going to um, see this walked out, this priority thing is that we're going to fight for the fact because the hardest one to keep in order and keep at the top is God and or Jesus. And so let me explain how I've come up with two lists that I've been using for seven years to make sure that I'm putting Jesus on top and that Jesus is being added to my today every day. I look at what are the things that stir my affection for Jesus? Music, Bible reading and prayer journaling, coffee and alone time, but with coffee in a mug versus a paper cup, atmosphere, having a location uh, that I maybe listen to the music and read the Bible and have my coffee. The location or atmosphere just elevates how much that just brings a calm and a peace. And I have an affection for Jesus. I love going and looking at museums and learning about history and what that does. It doesn't point me back to how great history was, it points me back to how good Jesus is. And I actually, through architecture and museums and history, I get kind of sappy for Jesus because I just think his story, I won't be cheesy, history, I just feel like I just appreciate the world and all that it's been. And that stirs in an affection for me. 
family times and memories made, quality time with the people closest to me, that stirs my affection for Jesus. Now, none of those, other than reading your Bible and praying, right? Um, But none of the other ones sound like, wow, that's like, you know, interceding in prayer for three hours and going to church. Like, why didn't I have listed going to a church building stirs my affection? Of course it does, but those are daily things. I can't wait for Sunday and getting in a building. And right now we're not, let's face it, we're not allowed. I mean, we're allowed by the amend the, the, I don't know, it's not the First Amendment, but we're allowed for freedom of religion, all that. Yeah, and then there's people that won't even go into a store with more than six people. So when we're not able to just fill up in our affection for Jesus on Sunday, which we never should have just waited for once a week, then what is the daily adding? It's realizing what stirs my affection for Jesus to keep him number one. Then I ask, and I ask you, what robs your affection for Jesus? For me, it's junk food. Even though it tastes good going in, I feel gross, miserable, cranky. I feel like a failure the minute I'm done eating it. Too much TV, just too much. And I found that during the pandemic. I should, and I have to say, Sunny, shut off the news. Um, You know, there's times that I just turn it on at night, but I don't even need it every night because they're repeating a lot of the same stuff. Too much routine. I need a little mix-up. Like, I can't always go with... I do this every day of my life for the next three years and maybe we'll see if there's any adjustment. No, I need like, I need a, 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 it's too much routine. I start to feel um, frozen and it robs my affection for Jesus. Social media rants and others ranting and then negativity and gossip totally robs my affection for Jesus. I get my eyes completely off of Jesus. So to keep God number one in your priorities, ask yourself now and ask yourself when you're feeling in a funk. What am I doing that's stirring my affection for Jesus? And what am I doing that robs my affection? So for instance, let me give you an example. I haven't been working out other than walking my neighborhood. And I walk, sometimes I walk for three hours. So in my head, I tell myself, oh, you're working out. Look at, you're walking so long. You're sweaty when you're done. You're, you know, you're walking hills. But I know that I would feel better if I actually went and worked out. So if I felt in a funk, I had to ask myself after about two weeks of just, you know, justifying, I'm taking walks, I'm fine. But I'm feeling in a funk. I had to ask myself, what would stir my affection for Jesus? And here's the thing. It doesn't always have to sound super spiritual. What stirs my affection for Jesus is going to be tonight I'm going to do yoga. And I know I'm going to feel better about myself. It will stir in me an affection for Jesus because it will dissipate the things that rob my affection, which is junk food and feeling lazy and feeling gross. And so that's like... It's almost like outsmarting yourself to realize that if I feel in a funk, I'll feel more in a funk, which makes me feel further from God, which makes me not want to pray, which makes me not want to listen to podcasts or or videos that are, that are about Jesus because uh, I'm giving up. And that's the cycle of, of depression. And I mean, I'm calling it a funk because it's not even depression yet. It's a funk that we don't get ourselves out of, but we haven't put God number one and we haven't put us number two. We may just be doing the same thing that isn't working, but we figure I don't have the energy to change anything. So ask yourself now and on a daily basis, what stirs and what robs my affection for Jesus? Next week, we're going to go into a couple other, I don't even want to give it away. It's just so good. We're just going to continue to. So let's keep, um, please go back, watch uh, watch the YouTube channel, go back, listen to the podcast, listen to them or watch them in order so that you can build upon building upon how to add Jesus to your today. I love you guys. Have a great, great week.